Hello, and welcome to another episode of the Folly Coffee Podcast. If you haven't done so already, I ask that real quick here, you just pause, go ahead and subscribe to the podcast, and if you've liked any of the previous episodes or this episode, please give us that five-star rating. It helps us greatly. Thank you, and enjoy this episode. Do you like money? Do you like free money? Introducing Folly Bucks. Give $10, get $10. That's right. You will get a unique code to share with your friends, family, enemies, anyone you know. They use that code. You automatically get $10 to use towards future Folly purchases. And the person you shared the code with gets $10 for their purchase. There is no limit to the amount of Folly bucks you can get. So head to follycoffee.com, hit the header at the top, and get your Folly bucks now. Let's go. Hey, this is Rob. This is episode 83 of the Folly Coffee Podcast. Let's get it brewing. All right. I am here with Houston White. Let's go through the list here. Founder of Houston White Men's Room, the barbershop that you founded in 2007, the Black Excellence, Black Excellence clothing line, and over 600 J.C. Pennies, and most recently the Target on Lake Street, now founded the Get Down Coffee Co., and all the reading I'm doing, there's a lot of other things you were doing before that, and it seems to be a lot more going on besides that, including an apartment building that you're going to be building out in the community of Camden Town. As I'm reading about everything you're doing, I think the thing that first occurred to me was like, a lot of business owners go, I founded this business to build community. And then you're like, all right, that feels nice to say, but here you are literally building a community around what you want to do. And we were just talking about on the way in that I go, as I'm opening Star Tribune today, of course, you're on the cover of the business section of Star Tribune. And then Jeff, our head roaster, literally yesterday out of the blue text, he really never does this. He's like, you know who you got to get on the podcast? You got to get Houston White on the podcast. I was like, I've got him coming in tomorrow. He's like, okay, okay, you're good. But pumped to have you on. Really want to talk about your story because everything you do seems to be very, very motivated externally. It's not, you're, a lot, I think a lot of business owners, you see them starting business because they want to have their own independence. They want to grow wealth. They want to be successful for whatever number of reasons. And so I want to talk about your story and go all the way back to the beginning on growing up in Mississippi and Minnesota and how this led to this motivation you have to do what you do because I can't, it's like almost incomprehensible the amount you do. So I'd love to just start at the beginning of your story, growing up in Minnesota and Mississippi and kind of how that led to your entrepreneurial journey. No doubt, man. First of all, thank you for having me. I, you know, we've been trying to make this happen for a couple of months now. Yeah, I, wouldn't, I wasn't going to stop emailing you, that's for sure. Most recently, I had to go to Florida, man, so sorry I didn't make that one. But uh, I'm here, man, and I'm excited. This is really cool. Great to meet you, man. Per- Great to meet to you as well. Yeah, I guess that should be noted. This is literally the first time we've ever met. No doubt. But, you know, my journey, I'm, I'm a kid from Mississippi, right, as you noted. Uh, and growing up in Mississippi... Um, which has some 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 a troubled history racially, right? But as a black kid, everyone around me um, owned a business of some sort or another. My grandmother was my first uh, seamstress or stylist, I like to say, because she made all my clothes. And so I'm seeing my grandmother make clothes, my uncle built cars, my other uncles and dad they built houses. And so as a kid, I jumped from place to place and in- industry to industry imagining like how I could do that or play in that space. I used to go with my grandmother every week to the fabric store. And so, you know, you could imagine if you're a kid on a job site, seeing a house being constructed, your imagination expands, right? Like I can do that. And so coming to Minnesota, um, it's a different world. I mean, great place, obviously, but as a kid who came from um, an environment where folks were just literally like in a village, going from thing to thing, just making that little community run to a place where you saw folks going to a bus stop to go to a town, right? Like it's a very different reality. And so I've always been that kid that's been inspired by what I saw in Mississippi growing up is like do for self, self self-sufficiency, use your imagination, uh, build things that benefit community. And I think it's just that man. It's, 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 that's who I am inherently. 
you know, this idea of like Minnesota talks about disparity, talks about the the, the wealth gap, the um, education gap, you know, between kids of color and, and, and white kids. And I and I think personally, being from where I'm from, it's directly related to community. So if I'm going to try to do something, you know, you, you, you generally revert back to where you're from, you know, and what inspired you. So it's just in me, man. It's inherent. Well, it's, it's funny you say the definition of entrepreneurship. It's a, it's a word I don't refer to myself much as entrepreneur because it's almost got an, a negative connotation as to what that is. You picture, you know, like the hashtag entrepreneur hustle guy and it's got to be this or that. But it, true entrepreneurship is what you're talking about in communities, people running their own businesses to serve the community. And it's kind of grown to this point that when you get to large cities or you get to more populated areas, entrepreneurship takes on this different meaning. And it's almost like kind of like, oh, that would be such a hard thing to do because it has to be this big, big thing to start. And I was reading a quote uh, that one of your mentors told you that you have to have the courage to keep it simple. Mm -hmm. And I'm curious what your thought process behind that, because it almost seems the opposite of what you would think that, well, it doesn't take courage to be simple. That's easy or simple. What do you mean when you uh, are taking your mentor's advice on you have to be have the courage to be simple? Well, it's like Warren Buffett said years ago um, when folks asked him, why would you launch this company from Omaha as opposed to move to one of the coasts? Right there, all the businesses happening out east or out west. And he said, if I were in New York, I would have had a million stock tips, a million meetings all kinds of folks telling me what I should do, where I should go. But being in Omaha and having like clarity allowed me to really think through what companies I wanted to invest in, to study them because I wasn't chasing around being the Wall Street banker guy, right? And so for me, simplicity is just that. Like for years, folks are saying, well, why don't you take this great barbershop that you have that's upscale to a more populous neighborhood in New York or Chicago or DC or why don't you you know uh, try to scale your brand yourself uh, via online when I was building it up early on in 2015 and 16 but my my goal was to make sure that it was it was really rooted in community and people if you google me there'd be a story and it wouldn't just be this thing that just popped up with these great branding and colors and some copy that some really cool person from said agency created for you, but it's really real. And so keeping it simple means to stick to the script, right? If you if your goal is to win a championship in the NBA or NFL, you know what? We got to go back to the basics. We got to drill reps, compartmentalize our learning, compartmentalize our business strategy. And then when it's all good on its own, you put it together and as they say, it takes 10 years to make overnight success. And that's really just compartmentalized thought and the simplicity of stacking block to block. And then you build something that's so integrated, so vertically integrated and strong that it's hard to knock it down. And there's such a difference between simple and easy. I think a lot of people think you can swap those words out. And it's just not true. Something can be simple and very, very difficult to accomplish. And a lot of people go, well, if it was simple, everybody would do it. And you start to realize that you go, no, simple ideas executed with a lot of hard work and vision are what separates simple ideas from success. What do you consider to be your first kind of uh, toe into entrepreneurship? Is there like an exact moment that you go, okay, this is, this is the first thing I'm starting or was it a little more organic than that? Man, I started my first business when I was seven. Um, I was in Mississippi and on Saturdays, that was the day we didn't really have to work. You know, I was seven. I, I grew up on the job sites. So I had to go for a little while. I started when I was about four or five. Um, and then my mom would come pick me up after a couple hours. But um, Saturday was that day we just roamed, played with, with you know, my cousins. And one of my uncles gave me an a, a old lawnmower. And my grandfather was a, a small engine repair guy. And he fixed it for me. And so I had this lawnmower. And so I, I hired a couple cousins. I told them I'd pay them with, with candy. <laughs> and, you know, who who doesn't like a young, industrious kid, right? And so we had all kind of folks saying, we'll give you $2 to cut this field. You know, in Mississippi, there's tons and tons and tons of open land. So it's hot as heck out there. And folks are like, well, let these kids go cut that grass down. <laughs> and so we had tons of work. And I would end up at the end of Saturday when the sun's going down with, like, 30 40 $50 sometimes. 
and I go buy huge bags of candy and I pay all my cousins in candy. <laughs> and that was like, <laughs> you know, I was just always been into this kind of do for self, try to figure things out. And um, at North High, well, before I got to North, I was about 12. I started painting T-shirts in the in the basement because the airbrush craze, you know, the early 80s, oh, the yeah, Velvet yeah. DeVoe, the whole thing. I, I got an airbrush and I was painting T-shirts and selling them for like three bucks a piece. And it just kind of, you know, snowballed on itself. It's just one thing leads to another and another and... You know, as you're airbrushing these T-shirts, what what kind of things were you airbrushing on them? Did you have an idea of this is what I want my line of airbrush T-shirts to be? You know what, man, I was just experimenting, copying stuff. Like I, I remember I painted, I had a line that said "sugar and spice." It was like the salt and it was so whack <laughs> now when I think back, but it was like the salt and pepper kind of, you know, <laughs> with sugar and spice, and it was a bunch of. Young boys at at Lincoln Elementary with sugar and spice on their. I mean, thank God there's not a picture of this. But, <laughs> um, and and I would paint like a lot of characters, you know, because that was the thing back then. Um, and and like painting uh, portraits. So I was really trying to figure out how to like create these realistic images on the shirts because folks wanted you to paint a picture of of them on their shirt. So, so you've always had this hustle in you. It seems like. Oh yeah. I was reading that you were building houses in potentially the worst time ever to be in the business of building houses in 2005 to like 2007. How did you find yourself in that line of work? Yeah. So, you know, from being from Mississippi, um, even when I lived in Minnesota, I went back to Mississippi every summer. And so a lot like the kids now who they grow up and their fathers work in the in the in the DOT or they work or you know they kind of grow up and they get grandfathered into that world where those really good high paying jobs working for the county they just kind of get grandfathered into and so that was my summer job in Mississippi I worked on houses with my dad and my uncle so I learned pretty much everything about building houses uh and my uncle was very good friends with the builder you know at several builders and so I got to see you know, architectural drawings and got to experience a house from slab all the way to the punch list finish. And it just, it, it was something that blew my mind. And so as I got older, um, it was about 21. I decided to buy a fixer upper in the, in the Camden neighborhood, great bones, really close to the parkway, but the bathroom was pink. <laughs> the kitchen was probably the original kitchen from when the house was first built um and so it needed it needed a refresh and so i had all those kind of skills to to do that work my wife and i we fixed it up we had a open house and folks came and said who did this I'm like oh we did it we love this could you do my bathroom and then that just started a thing where i started doing bathrooms and then kitchens and then basements um and then we bought a house uh not too far away we put an addition on uh, and that was my inroads into really building things. And then from there, I bought a piece of land out in Brooklyn Park. We built the house for ourselves. And then my cousin and then my other cousin. And then boom. Um, that was two thousand early, late 2004, early 2005. And by 2007, you know, we had done 40, 50 houses Jeez. in the Brooklyn Park area. Just because we had a spe- specific niche. Um, and that hustle, man, that grind and and... That was kind of the story. You know? What happens when the 2008 financial crisis hits? What happens to that business? You know, I was building a, 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 a $2.5, 3000000 dollars teardown in Golden Valley at the time. I was 29 years old. That was like, you know, heavy Rick Ross, Scott Storch days. And I'm like, we made it, right? We, we navigated the, the, the worst of it. Um, and I got a call and the banks were like, especially my construction bank, you know, they're like, our, our, we're, our accounts are frozen, right? We can't, we can't disperse any more funds on this project. And that was like, whoa. And so got together with all the contractors and we talked and we all agreed to take a, a, a haircut and we sold that house for pennies on the dollar, man. Um, and then I realized like, I, I, have built this great business, but I didn't have what I had in Mississippi was that central base. And and that's when I said, I got to use whatever I have left to buy a space, a place that no matter what happens in the economy ever again, that will be 
mine and something that I can go back to and an industry that will always be relevant no matter what's happening in the world. And so I bought the building um, in Camden Town and uh, we began fixing it up. And that's presumably what became the barbershop. That, that's what became the barbershop and, and the community kind of mecca or hub that we're you know building our business out of now. And how'd you get the word out about that uh, as you're building it and starting a barbershop and really with the goal of creating community, how are you getting the word out that this is here? You know, I mean, it, it's, a, it's a wild thing about how you build momentum and you inspire people. Um, it's word of mouth at this point. We've been doing this for so long. We've hosted everyone at that shop from Governor Walls to Archbishop Hebda, you know, to having a um, a national night out where we partnered with the Final Four host committee and and brought a whole basketball court to the middle of the street, you know. <laughs> so it's become, and, and it had every single Saturday and a lot of Fridays, various events you know we we uh in in 2015 i told all of uh, a lot of my clients and some of my closest friends that i was no longer going downtown minneapolis uh on fridays and saturdays because i realized that i was doing the very thing uh that i was complaining about which was you're constantly taking your resources out of your community you're you're reinforcing that 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 mindset that your community is not good enough so what we're going to do, what I'm going to do when I started this, is just buy a bottle of wine. And then at 4 o'clock, 5 o'clock, we're going to sit on the patio and just hang out. And it just started to build on itself. You know, and more people decided that that made sense. And um, it just it just built a community and a movement of folks who had that same mentality that we have to build what we want. And so that idea that... Like, oh, we got to go down, down, downtown to hang out because that's where everybody goes. And then you start to poke around and be like, why do you do it? Well, that's because of what everyone else does. And you're like, well, why do you do it? Well, that's because everyone else does. You go, well, what if we uh, what if we just hang out here? Would anybody want to hang out here? It's like, well, yeah, if Houston's hanging out there, I'll hang out. And then you get the word out that way. So this leads from a barber shop to a line of clothing that is now in 600 plus stores. And I'm like, when you when I read that number, I'm like, that is an inconceivable number of stores for for someone to be in, and not to be glossed over either. Is that casual amount of time where you're like, oh, I was 21 and I started building up this house, to being 29 and uh, working on that home that you had to sell for pennies on the dollar. That's eight years of time. So I have to imagine you've built a good reputation and a network of people. But opening the barber shop, how soon after did the clothing line come to be? The clothing line or the statement for the, the one of the first lines, which is Black Excellence, came to be in 2012. There was an event. It's called the Hip Hop Mixer. And so, as you know, everybody has their favorite rappers. You know, it depends on who you are, how you grew up. And so we basically just created a, a, a poll that everybody would take, or it was kind of a, you know, a sheet that said, well, who's your favorite rapper? And then there was a bunch of artists around who, who were displaying art. And so we had this event, and there was a um, a videographer there, and they had interviewed me out front, and they were like, "Well, what are you trying to accomplish?" And I said, "I don't want black to be associated with lack, and I don't want hood to mean hole in the wall. We classy around here. We do it big. This idea of black excellence." And so when I said that, he put that up on the video and the screen. I said, "Black excellence. Wow. I didn't even realize I kind of was saying, you know, you're just talking, and I didn't know what. The, and I'm like, we got to do something with that." That's powerful. Um, and so we started to make a couple T-shirts that had black excellence on it. Well, I started with the logo first. And I'm like, well, if we're going to do this, this logo has to be iconic. You know, like a Nike swoosh or a Adidas. You know, it has yeah, yeah. to be something that you just recognize. Um, and so we worked for a while. I had a client who was going to MCAD and he wanted to help. And we went through a ton of iterations. Finally got a logo that I thought, like, this is it. And then we produced the shirts it took about a year and a half to get to a you know a good place and in 2014 we launched that spring um so you're and, saying there's a little more thought than the airbrush t-shirts you used to be doing <laughs> more than that. did and, you bring back the sugar and spice line <laughs> no that, that was that was done uh, but you know to see all of those folks come out yeah and and to see what that statement meant to the community um I'm like, this is powerful. 
And so there were other things that grew out of it, you know, and it was like, I'm, 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 I've, I've always been into apparel design. I've always been into aesthetics and clothing and all of that. Um, but I saw that like a Ralph Lauren who built this line that was really about aspiration and inspiration and just wearing it meant that even if you weren't a person that's ever been to a polo match, you were one of those people, right? And so I started to see the power in branding and clothing and especially the idea of black excellence when a lot of young men from where I'm from were struggling with identity, uh, you know? And so that's kind of how it started, man. And then it just grew and grew and grew. And, you know, we ha- we outgrew what we could sell at the barbershop. In 2019, it will, yes, in the 2018-2019, the, the buyer for men's, approached me about being in, in JCPenney for a Black History Capsule would be the first time they would have ever done a Black History Month kind of capsule. And so we talked about it and agreed that we'd you know, do about 20,000 units and see how it goes. I mean, look, she had her neck on the line. Yeah. If this doesn't work, it's not like we can just, you know, um, sell these things. So when, when we launched in store, it would have been 2020, uh, January 5th or 4th, two weeks after, completely sold out. <laughs> and they realized that they didn't buy enough. And so so fast forward, the pandemic is 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 ravishing the community, you know, the world, and then George Floyd's murdered, and then they're trying to figure out we want to work with Houston again, but but it needs to be a different conversation. And so I started to talk to him about the idea of one of my other lines that had emerged, which was be the change. And wouldn't it be something if we had active allies next to black folks celebrating black history in a, in a year that has been very difficult? And so that led to 200 plus thousand units <laughs> and boom, right? Like it's just this amazing situation if you build something authentically and it has a message that really resonates and kind of what I thought would be the future of, of apparel which is people are looking for something that has more meaning, you know, it has more purpose. And then who made it and why did they create it? Well, the, the authenticity is such a, a key part to what you're talking about because it's it's very obvious in everything you do of why you're doing it. And you're looking to literally build community. And ha- at any point in building that business, did you have people go, well, maybe you're focusing too hard. Is it, are you limiting yourself to your customers by focusing on black excellence? Is, do you want to maybe soften it up a bit so that it appeals to more people and there might be a broader outreach or that key retailers might not want to take the risk on because I think retailers look at it like, especially a massive retailer like JC Penney's could look at a line like that and be like, well, that's a risk. And is that something that ever came up in the discussion of creating that brand? Oh, of course it came up. I mean, folks are, you know, it's like uh, Henry Ford said, if you want to ask people what they wanted back when I was building this, 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 this business, they would have said faster horses. <laughs> that's, that's the way people think. I love that. You know, people think it's like you have to do a, you, you can't break the mold, right? You, you can't push that, that far. Um, but I'm a believer that we have to, you know, um, if folks can say black lives matter, why can't they say black excellence? Exactly. Well, and it's, and it's so funny because it, it seems to me that the cultural shift that happened in 2020 was the corporate messaging of, I, it drives me nuts when you see the corporate messaging. That's just like, we're with you. And you're like, okay, now what? And you're like, no, no, no. We already, we did it. Didn't you see the commercial? Like you saw the commercial, <laughs> right? Like we're, we're with you. And you're like, but now what? And what you're doing is I, I wrote this down before you came in is culture plus capacity. This is such a cool idea because the way you think about business and culture combined, I think creates a big differentiation in what you're doing because most large corporations, especially previous to 2020 go, no, we did the commercial. We're good. Now Mm -hmm. you're approaching businesses say you have the capacity for change and you as Houston have the culture. So you're going to them with culture as a business proposition and 2020, if anything good happened, is it made people reevaluate how they're making business decisions, and you've brought culture as a business to them. And unfortunately, at the corporation level, that's how that's how shit gets done. That's how shit gets done, man. The bottom line is, if you think about it like this, Dr. Dre 
produced the chronic in a studio, probably a lot like this room we're in right now, right? Probably with a whole lot of weed smoke and a whole <laughs> lot of stuff going on. But that he had that record finished, complete, and shopped it to 19 labels from New York to California all over and got rejected by all of them because they're like, whoa, 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 that easy eat thing. It's, that, a, it's right? a bit much. It's a bit much. This is not going <laughs> to. And then it took Jimmy Iovine. And think of what happened. And Jimmy Iovine admits now that Dr. Dre was a, a, a huge part of the reason why his brand and his record label exploded in the way that it did because he was always emergent, you know, and signing groups like Nine Inch Nails and, 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 you know, Gwen Stefani, like way, way out there folks that most people will be like, that's not going to hit. You don't take her, you know? And so, so many corporations have glossed over this idea of really partnering with, with folks who already have the chronic, they just need the machine to put the chronic out. Right. And that's how I approach it. I already got the chronic. I already got everything (laughs) that (laughs) I just need your machine and your, 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 um, influence and we can help each other, you know? So we move this, this idea of social justice from a moral imperative to an economic imperative. You got to speak the language of business and that's, what it is at the end of the day. And know? that cultural shift created this catalyst that they're going, we, we need this. And you're going, guess what? I've been building this for years now. Like you, you just need to have the capacity plus the culture that we've created over here. And that's the cool part about what you did is you formed it within a community and you built that brand as a community. And one of the things that stood out to me is as you're saying, this is how it was built is you found people that like swarm to want to help with this. And I think there's probably a couple of reasons that happen. And, you know, hindsight's 2020 as I'm looking at this, but I think any great idea that happens is going to attract people for a number of reasons. The number one is usually like financial. People go, oh, this is a huge financial opportunity I want in. And usually that's a very shallow relationship. But what you were doing attracted people that say, I want to be a part of this movement. I want to be a part of changing the narrative behind what black excellence could be. And just starting as a phrase that was in a video going, oh, that needs to be something and creating it to something that an initial order of 20,000 units, which seems huge, sells out in two weeks. So as they place this 200,000 unit order later, where does it go from there? I mean, this was just, I guess, like eight, nine months ago. Yeah, I mean, we we the we launched in well 2021. You know how this thing retails always six months to a year ahead. So I I get confused all the time. It's yeah. like we're planning stuff now for 2022. So it's uh, it's just a wild world. But from there, you know, Target stepped in and was like, well, okay, you know, you you did all of that, right? And that's great. Um, but let's talk about what we can do together. And so that's where I am right now is is in 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 talks with Target Corporation about what does it look like um, to build uh, a, a brand inside of the, the third largest retailer that really resonates, you know, powerfully and, 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 and really reflects a community, but also brings in more more people to, to, to learn and share. And there's that culture plus capacity moment. And, and how do we make that happen in a, in a much more impactful way that could lead to opportunities for other entrepreneurs and also become a blueprint of how you build communities all over the country? And the culture, like I couldn't stop coming back to culture plus capacity because sometimes when you look at someone like yourself, like serial entrepreneurs, so many endeavors going on, the, the number one thing you might hear is like, well, aren't you worried that you're losing focus on any one thing, especially we haven't even gotten to the get down coffee company yet, but you've positioned it in a way around culture plus capacity. That's very easy now to explain why you're doing any facet of your business. And it's easy to go to these corporations. And I'm, I'm curious in these conversations that you're having at like a corporate level, are those conversations what you expect like, what are those meetings like as you're trying to explain to them? Like, you're like, I'm building a community over here, and this represents the, what we're doing over here, and this is a product line. Because you've got this, like, in- incredibly impactful, meaningful work you're doing, and you're like, here's the price to you, here's the, <laughs> here's the margin that you would make, and here's how it fits in within, like, your current, you know, summer line. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, here's how it fits next to 
this trend of uh, apparently as a millennial, I can't wear skinny jeans anymore. So you're like, here's how it fits in within that t- side of the business. You know, the, 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 the irony is, is, is a lot of these corp- these conversations are like, teach us, right? It's, That's cool. It's changed a lot. Like when you talk about global sourcing, I'm listening. I'm not an expert in that. Right. So that's that's where it's like my turn to sit here and take notes. But when you start talking about the five, six plus year feasibility study of seeing what moves people that I have and I can articulate and show. And then when we start to talk about because I'm all about show and prove. Right. The, 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 The Lake Street target drop I called it a Kanye drop and I even said that in the meeting like this is our Kanye drop we're not we're just gonna when it sells out it's sold out right that's a that's a part of culture it's a part of the supreme culture it's like they drop however many shirts when it's gone that creates demand it's a position of strength and so we did I don't know what the number of 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 garments were but to see that like just every day sparser and sparser and rack starting to you know we started out with this big huge area that was all full and then every single day it's just shrinking that was like proof positive that we can scale this shrinkage moment in every well not every store but a lot of stores and so it's these wild conversations of learning together and folks being humbled enough to say we know our our we know retail the way we all these we way we've always known it what we don't know is how to build you know a story that impacts and brings in more people more diversity right and that kind of thing and so it's this real cool sharing moment man the the, with the bank for instance i mean you got greg cunningham who has the lived experience who's right next to andy ceseri who is a friend of mine and a mentor of mine and we i brought this to greg I don't know, maybe a couple years ago now, but we've had these conversations, just small iterative conversations. And December 27th, 2019, he and I went to the Hewing and had one of the most important business conversations that I've ever had in my life. We didn't know a pandemic was coming in a few months, and we certainly didn't know that Minnesota was going to be the social justice capital of the world, right? But that night, we were just two black men trying to figure out how can we combine our our respective um, platforms to do something great for this city. And that's what the conversation was based on. And out of that, he went to work, I went to work, and the very first corporation that I brought this idea of culture plus capacity to was U.S. Bank inside of my barbershop. Um, and it just, boom, sparked a little bit of a revolution, you know, in the way we think about these kinds of, uh, of, of transactions and how we work with people. And having the courage to be simple, you're starting all of this out of a barbershop, dude. Like, it's crazy. Like, it's like, I think so many people think they have to have, like, a, a revolutionary new way of doing everything. And the funny thing is you're doing the opposite, is you're going to retailers being like, why why not do it this way? Why not do the Kanye drop? When it runs out, it's out. Like, that's how we do a lot of our stuff. That's, like, it's the reason people want to get it. It's cool. Like, you want something that, like, you can't get again if you don't get it this time. And they're totally. like, well, that's not how we do it. And you're like, but this is how people do it. And just, why do you keep doing it your way? Why don't we do it this way? And it's, I mean, it's incredible. We haven't even touched on the Get Down Coffee Co. So, technically, this is a coffee podcast on paper. But let's go back. So, during all of 2020, uh, my understanding from just, like, the different places I was reading about you is that you were planning on potentially, like, leasing or having a dogwood open next to the barbershop so that there was great coffee within the community. How did it go from there to the founding of Get Down Coffee Co.? Yeah, I mean, Dan Anderson is is a is a dear friend of mine, one of the most awesome human beings I've ever met. Owner of Dogwood. Owner of Dogwood. Yeah. Um, he and I have been um, know, getting to know each other and building a relationship for the last six years. And, you know, over that time, I've I've grown to just love specialty coffee. It, 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 you've been in this business for it, every, it's like your favorite movie. Every time you watch it, 
there's something new that you right and it's just it's just interesting and so when we were preparing to build this new um development i did i went at great coffee and connected and i said and dan was going to be shutting down the the um the calhoun square mm-hmm. um cafe and i'm like well i would love for you guys to just retrofit and bring dogwood over north that'd be awesome and he agreed and we kind of were just going on that on that track um fast forward george floyd's murdered dan reaches out to me um early early june and he says houston you know can we go golfing um i just want to talk and you know I, and, and we got out to the golf course playing golf it's a beautiful day he even got me to do the Happy Gilmore. <laughs> you know, Dan's a hockey guy, right? So uh, about on the, I don't know, 10th hole or something we played. And it was it was awesome. But the, the conversation was, he said, what do we do? What do I do? You know, you know I have this business and, and we want to help. But what do we do? And I said to him, I said, Dan, I don't know exactly what you do. But as a friend, just don't be the donation guy, right? Don't yeah. give, don't pander to my community because what happens is that moment, you know, it recedes and then people go back to life as normal and made you feel good temporarily, but it didn't have impact. So think about what you could do to create impact. Dan goes home, come, calls me a day or two later and says he wants to meet, comes to meet. And he says, uh, Angie, his beautiful wife said that he and I should start a business together. <laughs> I'm like, no, like I'm busy. I have enough <laughs> things going on. And he said, no, hear me out. You said you wanted to create something to have more impact. You know, the the roastery is the bigger, better part of our business. And we can create impact by bringing a roastery to North Minneapolis and creating jobs, creating industry, knowledge, so on and so forth. That could really impact the community. And so I'm like, okay, I did say that. Now, now, he's, now he's speaking your language. <laughs> All right, we'll say more, right? Yeah. And so I told him what my limitations were and what I needed from him if we were going to do this. So we talked about a month or so about how this could go. Uh, and then, boom, I agreed, and we started to ideate about what it would be called. And we were in a in the cupping room just noodling ideas at first we were like blends because this idea of merging things and we had all these different thoughts and then i said the get down and he said the get down and because i was planning to do a uh um uh 2021 fall fashion week uh event where i i created jean jackets and like silk shirts because you know the disco era and the b-boying era converged to create hip-hop and so I always had this get down fashion uh, collection planned. And I'm like, the get down. Dogwood, Houston White, Dan. Uh, it's got to be the get down because I wanted to bring culture. And the same way I wanted to create that fashion moment is like this was a white space I saw in Specialty Coffee. And that's kind of how it, how it got going, man. On specialty coffee, I I say we, but we're we're very guilty of being very snooty and pretentious. And it is a very heavily, like, white culture. And it is the weird thing where, like, I I think it's a very inclusive community. Anybody I've encountered in the specialty coffee is very inclusive. And there seems to be a lot of uh, forward progress to trying to increase diversity but it is difficult if it's kind of like it's not cool <laughs> like like you're creating brands that aren't cool how are you going to attract new people to join into it and so it creates this community of people that like you go to all these events and you're like i see the same people every year because everybody's creating brands that are attracting the same exact people and then you come along with get down and i'm like this is just cool like this is how you attract new people into this category and that's what we were talking about uh, off mic before that I'm like, I think some people are like, why are you like having all these competitors on your podcast and like <laughs> hyping up your competitors and stuff? I'm like, because everybody's competing for the same small group of specialty coffee drinkers. And you can picture, you know, the, the upturned mustache with some funky hat and like probably going to recommend a band that you've never heard of that they've seen, you know, and by creating something that's just cool, you're going to attract coffee drinkers from other cultures, from and then also people that just want to do like and drink cool stuff and be associated with that brand. Then when it's great coffee, they go, oh, also it's great coffee, by the way. And so the way you're approaching it from 
like uh, the lens of a fashion designer is really interesting. And I think sometimes, especially in food and beverage, the people that tend to have success come from the outside. You know, I come from the beer world. And so Folly's very heavily influenced by what worked in the beer world. And I'm like, I don't have these revolutionary ideas. I just go, they're working over here. Why won't it work over here? And so you're over here in the fashion world going, well, that's going to be really cool. Why don't we do that in the coffee space? And by doing that in a very non, like a purely non-pandering way, you're going to attract people to want to try it, to want to drink this style of coffee and build a new culture around it. And like, those are the types of businesses that are truly impactful. And another thing you said that really resonated with me is the donation thing that it's like, look, we're a really small business. And like, it's not like we have a bunch of cash to throw around. And so I've always been like, oh, I wish we could donate more. But then realizing that's like, it's not donations that are long lasting. If anything, like charity or donation can create the opposite effect that if you have ongoing charity or donation, it can create dependence on those donations. And what you're doing is like building things that are going to be long lasting. And I, I read another quote uh, is that the thought of what can I build that will have impact for a hundred years? I'm quoting it wrong, but that idea is really cool. You're not taking the hashtag entrepreneur thing where you go, what business can I build for five years that has great margins, is scalable, that will be purchased, and I can flip it for millions. You're building a business through that, and that's why something in competitive categories like coffee or fashion, I think that's why it's working. And obviously, there's a lot more going behind closed doors. We just met, but I'm going, it's impossible not to see the authenticity behind what's happening. And it's so cool to see that. Yeah, it's interesting, man. Like, like you know, I, I obviously coming off of a business that I thought was going to make me a billionaire at when I was 26, 27, and we were doing all this cool stuff. And I'm like, sky's the limit, right? That's all I could see. And then experiencing people that I loved and then watching on TV folks jumping out of buildings because their stock portfolio lost 60% in value. That that taught me a lot. That stuck with me is that folks were more interested in 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 their net worth than than they were of their net benefit. You know, to community, to their family. The way you 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 commit suicide because you've lost money. Money. And so that forever made me focus on my passion and impact. I could have made a fortune if I stayed in real estate over the last 13 years. I haven't touched real estate because I lost my passion for it because of what I experienced. It was, I love to build things. I love real estate in the sense of like creating creating spaces but it would it would have just been a money play for me if I would have stayed in it because I I was depressed at 30 years old because now what right and when I when I figured out what next I said that I have to go a mile deep and an inch wide and not be this guy that you know um, is just very topical and making money. And I did do that. I gave money to my old basketball team in 2005 and, you know, showed up to take the photo. And and and, and that's cool, but that doesn't have impact. I, I need to be teaching these young men and women how to fish so they don't need me anymore. That's the whole idea, especially in communities of color. You know, we suffer from not just a, a, a wealth chasm, but it's a knowledge chasm and a relational chasm, you know, and it is it, business growth is much as about who, you know, as what, you know. And so I wanted to be someone that could help bring bridge that gap and create a whole bunch of liberated entrepreneurs that are able to donate money or do whatever the hell they want to do. Right. There's not this vacuum of there's this one thing and everybody works for this company. Right? Like, I don't I don't want that. And you're doing it in a way that's generating revenue. And that's the crazy thing is I, I think a lot of people with your vision would be like, I need to found a, for, a fa- I need to form a foundation and go out and get those donations and then I'll do the work. And it's like 
you're creating businesses that are going to create jobs. And then when people are in those jobs, they're going to be in this business and see how the inner workings of business work, similar to when you were in Mississippi and saw businesses of just going to pick up fabric that you go, oh, this is a business. It's it's a simple idea, but this is an entrepreneurial endeavor. You're in business for yourself. And it's absolutely so cool to see. And so what are the plans uh, now? For, I, I, I think I read today that you broke ground on the Get Down Coffee Code. That's going to be uh, like in the same building, the roastery is, as the barbershop. Is that correct? Well, so what we broke ground on was the, we're going to build a new barbershop. And then the space that we currently um, are in, we're going to gut it. And it's going to be the first front-facing get-down cafe. So it's going to be very experiential. You know, the Red Wing uh, boot? up yeah, in, yeah. We're going to create kind of a boot moment, right? Like So this becomes a destination. It's going to be very interesting and unique. Full-time DJ booth. Just a lot of really cool stuff in, in coffee. Um, yeah, for context, for anybody listening, Red Wing is probably heard of the shoe, but it's literally in Red Wing, Minnesota. And when you go to their flagship, like headquarters store, there is a booth that's like 10 feet tall and yeah. everybody's seen it. If you're from Minnesota. Absolutely. And you travel up there just to see it. Right. Yeah. And so that's what we want to do is create this, this, this destination and this draw the two year goal. We're going to identify space place or a piece of land and build a roastery in North Minneapolis. I mean, you think about Surly, right? The bit, the, the, as big as that, that, brand and that business has grown and I mean you're from the craft beer world and you understand I mean that brings a lot of Mac jobs we're making things we're bringing back what made America um, the, the the beacon of hope in the in the world is that people have an opportunity to dream and then create and then that 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 business or that industry that you create catalyzes community you know um, and so that's the whole idea and that's going to be basically a, a two to three year process just depends. And going back to what you said about like having success in real estate and realizing that I could continue even after the crisis to make a lot of money in this, but to see people's lives ruined because their stock portfolio got messed up is you kind of realize that money can get taken from you at any time, especially when it's primarily controlled by banks. When you do business or stock portfolios, it's someone else else's like it's someone else's work that's influencing your own wealth and like you building the house. And then the bank was like, sorry, no more versus building a community. Somebody can't come in and just be like, Hey, we took your community. Like, no, like we built this, like this community can't just be taken in the way that like wealth or money can be taken. And on like a much smaller scale, it's, it's funny. Jeff and I had this conversation that it was like, it was uh, a while ago, but it was a, a especially stressful week. And he was just like, orders to the gills and like you know it was a tough roast week and things just weren't perfect like he wanted and I go you know what man like even if we went out of business tomorrow we still spent the last few years doing what we want to do meeting awesome people and we're gonna be okay because of the people that like this community of people that we've met and become a part of and that was kind of a cool moment for me that I was like, all right, if we go out of business, I, I think I'll be able to land on my feet, not because I've generated a ton of wealth or because I have money to throw out and to do anything else. But at the core of it is like the community of who you surround yourself really, I think, is much more impactful to your happiness or your well-being than how many zeros you have in a bank account. And, you know, coffee is probably there's a lot of people. In, one thing I love about coffee and the industry is it's not the most profitable industry. If you put the same amount of work into building other types of brands or products, you definitely make more money, but you find people that are in coffee because of what you said, that every layer you start to peel back, there's something else that's really amazing about it, whether it be that if we can sell better coffee from all the way down to the origin to benefiting the origin and the growers, and they're going to be able to be more economically sustainable to just taking business from the mega corporations that are making crappy coffee and having that money live in our community and being consumed by people that we know. I, like, I Absolutely. Could, I can tell you from our online orders, I could probably tell you exactly who most of them are, even if we haven't met because they've ordered before. And that was kind of uh, something that I struggled with early on in business, which is ironic because this is how you started yours. Is When I first started Folly, almost all of our online orders were people I knew personally. And that made me feel like a phony because it's like, this isn't a real business. 
these are just people I know doing me a favor versus thinking about it now, that's more important than anything. Because what you did is you started that way is no, this is our community. I want it to be people I know. I want this to be built by people that I know personally. And that might be kind of the conflict between I've never really lived in that small community. I've never lived in that like where everybody is self-starter and sustaining the community. And so maybe because I grew up in a way that I never viewed it that way, that was phony because I wasn't the, you know, the, the hashtag entrepreneur guy. And looking back on it, hearing what you say is really cool way to kind of be like, oh, maybe that's why this is working for me to a certain level is because it's built on the backs of the community and people I know and the support of others. And it's just really cool. And so you've got the barbershop, you've got the roastery being built on two years, you've got black excellence, and now the be the change line going, you're, t- you're in JCPenney's, you're talking to Target. Is there anything else you've got on the horizon that you're working on? Or is it is, is this what you're focused on for the time being? You know, this is what I'm focused on. The, there's a development um, arm brewing. Um, it's a culture plus capacity moment as well. Um, a huge firm that I just bring the culture to, right? And then we can figure out how to impact communities all over this country and do it in a way that doesn't appropriate or displace, you know, the big gentrification issue, right? Like if you look at Uptown and a place that we all, I grew up loving to go to Uptown and big development came in and that community, I believe lost its soul. And it's, it's, it's that, that large developers have to learn. There's nothing wrong with building amazing buildings. There's nothing wrong with the cap that you need. There's not all that's fine. But what you have to have at the table is someone who helps you figure out how to design programming that is going to still attract community and that these developments are still going to be soulful. It's kind of like if you think of the impact of a place like First Avenue, you, you, you can't just knock it down and say we're going to build a skyscraper here and then we'll put a first avenue on the first floor. No. That you have to we have to build it. We have to respect what what that means, you know, and it, we can't just chase profit when thinking about building community. And so that I'm I'm working on. It's funny you say Uptown because it really is just like no one goes there anymore because there's nothing there that you couldn't go other places in the country or go into other places and see the exact same stores. You go to Mall of America and see the exact same stores that now seem to populate Uptown. And it's almost it could be argued that the better business strategy would be to turn down the short-term profitable stores that are national chains because – I think, a lot, especially in real estate, I would imagine that if someone like a national chain came in and said, we want to put a store here, they're going to be the priority because it's a safer option. It's an established name. They're going to be able to pay the bills, even if the store is not profitable. But then when every store becomes that, the customers stop, stop showing up for the reason that they started showing up in the first place. So there is a way to shift that argument of don't just do this because it's cool or because like this uptown's kind of lame now do it because the reason the customers are here is what you should be focused on it shouldn't be that short-term one-year five-year lease that you we know we're going to get paid for those five years but that's such a difficult thing to convince anyone of is short-term profitability over long-term sustainability of an area it is but one thing that we have now is the entire world paused and I always, as a as an entrepreneur, as a business person, I'm always looking for um, those moments to pounce. You know, um, I, I think of myself as a business guy a lot like Ali fought Frazier. You know, I hang out on the ropes until there's that moment and then you go. And this is that moment, you know, where the entire world is reckoning with all facets of business from how much real estate do we need to how do we create a more of a shared uh, model? And this is the time to redefine what everything from retail, from the apparel um, to grocery, to development, 
you know, to what DEI looks like, to the communities that are going to be developed, you know, all over the country, right? We suffer. Chicago has a has a has a a real challenge trying to figure out how we get those young men, particularly, motivated to do something different or you know how how we how we don't just come in and 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 throw away a whole community and replace it with you know and that that's not just going to be decided by some developers that have a balance sheet there's cultural understanding and nuanced way of doing this that's going to have to happen and it's going to require somebody who's culturally inept adept at that table you know and so this is that opportunity. Yeah, you can't make that up. It has to be authentic. You can't like you just can't make up on a business sheet and be like, "Well, these seem to be the trends." So, <laughs> well, let's just form a brand around that because if anything, consumers are more intelligent and have more access to resources than ever, and the ability for the consumer to sniff out bullshit is it's impossible not to. And that is another part of last year that I think people thought a lot more about where they're spending their money, which stores they're shopping at, how they're consuming things, why they're consuming things. And it is an opportunity to go back and say, the consumer is demanding this. So it would be stupid not to do this. By the way, I'm your guy to do it. So have, <laughs> have me come in, have me come in. I'm talking about you as if I'm me, but have Houston come in and develop this area because I'm doing it up north mm-hmm. and we're doing it right. And look at what we're, and it's just so cool to see that. And I, I, I honestly look at what you're doing is very inspiring as to having core authenticity to what you're doing and having that guide what you do. And I can't wait to see everything as it's built out. It's going to be so cool. Yeah. Thank you so much, man. I really appreciate it. This, yeah. is, this is awesome. And the coffee community, I love what you said because any car dealers or restaurants, what do they do? They want other restaurants and other car dealers in proximity. You know, we don't have to compete. We can inspire um, and still sharpen still. So I love what you said about the specialty community, coffee community, not having to um, compete with one another, but figure out how we can large, bring in more uh, consumers um, and, and have them ha- enjoy this beverage that we've grown to love uh, and understand why it's different, you know? And you attract it by doing cool stuff. Like, that's what it is. You, and you don't just do what everybody's been doing and go, this will work. So we'll find new people. No, you won't. And so to see the Get Down Coffee Co. come along and be like, this is so radically different from anything I've seen in coffee. And instantly, the amount of publicity, the successful Indiegogo, the uh, attention. I mean, I couldn't go anywhere for like three, four weeks without reading about Get Down. That's why I reached out to you to come on the podcast. I go, anytime I see that, it means somebody's doing something so right that people have to pay attention. And then I'm like, I need to get them on the podcast to figure out how the heck did he do all of this? It's insane. Um, and it reminds me of like this, uh, this study they did about why do you always see Pepsi and Coke machines next to each other? You would think they'd have enough money to go to a store and be like, I'm putting a Coke machine here contractually you're not allowed to put a pepsi machine next to it people are more likely to buy one both sales of machines go up if there's a pepsi and a coke machine because then as people pass by they're not deciding should i have a pop should i have a soda or not they're deciding should i have a pepsi or a coke absolutely and that's how i look at the specialty coffee community when it's let's say starbucks is the store out front they're not deciding should i have a specialty coffee or not they're deciding which one and people who are into high-end stuff tend to try a lot of it and they rotate what they try and that's what i love about this is a folly drinker isn't just a folly drinker they are going to be a get down coffee drinker they're going to be a dogwood drinker they're going to be enough people that get into it that all of these businesses are going to thrive and like being from the craft beer world that's what you saw on that side is that industry exploded and then the breweries that aren't lasting are the ones that chase the pure short-term financial gains. Mm-hmm. And the ones that are surviving are the ones that built their community. When you look at like Surly and what they did, they could have invested all of their money into a huge national distribution push. Instead, they said, we're going to open the most badass tap room, maybe in the country. I mean, it's arguable that it could mm-hmm. be one of the best in the country. And now that place is so ingrained in the community that they're going to be around for 100 years versus, right. versus other breweries were like, we got to chase those short-term financial gains because distribution is there and people are throwing money at craft beer. 
overextend themselves, and now you see them going out of business left and right. And so that that mile deep, inch wide is like such a great insight as to like how to grow a business that people want to continue to be a customer of and feel connected to versus just the business side of, of the uh, money-making opportunity. But um, that, I, I know it's a great episode when I've, I'm like, I got to re-listen to this to make sure I didn't sound stupid as I'm rambling about the things. I just get like really excited and uh, it, it's so cool hearing your story and I, I know this thing's going to blow up. And uh, thanks again for coming on. I'm re- really glad we could find the time. Man, thanks for having me, bro. It's, right. it's a pleasure. I'll end it like I do every other episode and say have a nice day.